0: Thank you, thank you. Hello, everyone, thank you for having me. Um, My name is Tyler, He got that right. I am the Creative Director at Bridgetown. Um, I've been in the Portland area now for about uh, 12 years, actually this week. uh, My wife is from here, I don't know if you've met her. Uh, It's Marshall's sister, so she's she's pretty great and one of my favorite Pruitts. Uh, But now that I've been here, 12 years, I've been told that I earn local status, um, which means that I can finally complain about all the Californians moving here. (laughs) But, but I have to um, confess, I'm originally from Southern California. I grew up attending a little church down there called Calvary Chapel. If any of you have ever heard of it, Um, I uh, (laughs) I have a VHS copy of me as a little kid being uh, dedicated by chuck smith which is kind of a big deal so i'm excited to be here at vineyard i don't know where that leaves me on the calvary chapel vineyard lines but listen i did attend a vineyard preschool as a kid down there in southern california and they by far had the best playground definitely better than calvary chapels Uh, and i remember a lot of my time at vineyard was in those circles uh, learning from a teacher and a lot of felt boards, you know, a lot of Jesus and all the Bible characters on felt boards. But there was this one, uh, one particular uh, puppet snake that really scared me. Uh, every time they told the Garden of Eden story, the teacher would bring out this snake, and he always used an evil voice. You know, a lot of drawn-out s's in the serpent, like it was the Jungle books or something. And I don't know if it was because I was a little kid, but it was really scary. Uh, And I always remember thinking, how is this felt-bore Jesus supposed to beat this big, terrifying puppet snake at the end of the teacher's arm? And I I guess we'll have to find out today. So with that said, please turn in in your Bibles Genesis chapter 3. This morning, we are going to be doing um, a biblical theology of sin. Uh, We're in a series titled The Vandalism of Shalom, uh, where we are looking at the corruption that has moved through the world since the beginning of creation. And this morning, we are going to follow that thread through the Old Testament to see just how bad it gets for everyone involved, which means we're going to be moving pretty quickly through Genesis and Exodus and then jump forward into the New Testament. So just stick your fingers... Somewhere in the Old Testament, and maybe you'll get lucky. We might hit it. Uh, but to start, we are going to begin with Adam and Eve in Genesis three. Uh, to the before this point in the story, uh, we see the creation account as it plays out. A lot of this is probably review at this point in the series. But the way that it plays out is that the story of heaven and earth and how it's created. Uh, before that, we found darkness over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Sounds very ominous, I know. Kind of a weird picture in your mind. But out of that became came day and night, and it was good. Then God separated the waters, both in the sky and the earth. From this formless, watery void, God brought order to the dry land and seas. Also good. We've got plants, trees, sun, moon, sea creatures, birds, living creatures, all of it very good. Then finally, in Genesis 1.27, we read, God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is where we are introduced to the first humans, Adam and Eve. God God stood back saw what he had made and was happy about it. The archetype for humanity is found in this creation account. Adam meaning human, Eve meaning life. And as the first humans, they embody our original design and intent. None of that is new. I'm sure you're very familiar with that. They were made in the image of the God. The first breath was God's breath. Everything was theirs to cultivate and enjoy. This that we're seeing right now is what Jace described in the first teaching as the idea of shalom where everything is as it should be. Cornelius Plantinga, author of Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, says it this way about shalom. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator and savior, As its creator and savior opens the doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So here we are in a peaceful garden, living in perfect connection with God and nature. But now we're going to read about how it all goes wrong. And Marshall got into this last week as well. But we're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 13. If you want to follow along in your Bibles. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the trees, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent says, you will not surely die to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from its... When you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable, she gained wisdom. For gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded? You were not to eat from. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So this bizarre, talking creature approaches Eve with a clear plan to subvert the established shalom. God has given mankind a place to eat, cultivate, flourish, and multiply, but with the single condition, don't eat of this tree. You're all very likely familiar with the story. Whether you have grown up in the church or not is a well-known story, so you likely knew how this was going to play out. In the story, we see the serpent convincing Eve that what you eat of your eyes, that when when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. But this is just how clever the serpent is. Eve, unlike all other created beings, unlike the serpent was made in the image of God, meaning Adam and Eve are already like God. And the serpent deceived them into believing something different. The serpent convinced them to rebel and take for themselves what was already true about them. Even more, they were given authority over the beasts of the field, including the serpent, which is just another way that they fell into this deception. This failure to abide by the will of God has undone the perfect order of the garden. From this story, we are able to determine uh, the origin and a working definition of sin. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in an attempt to get full, abundant life apart from God. They trusted themselves over God, and that is the original sin. It's this. It's this taking for yourself and separating yourself from God over and against God. And that is what the Bible calls sin. It's a good desire channeled through the wrong means. Sin is an attempt to meet our deepest needs by our own resources. And if you were here last week, Marshall got into this. It is in this story with Adam and Eve. They are rejecting the goodness and authority of God to define for themselves what is good, right, beautiful, and real. The sin pattern that is being established is see and take. Judge for yourself. See for yourself. Judge for yourself. Create your own perception. And then take what you want based on that perception. Does that make sense? Are you following? The serpent is telling them when he deceived Eve, he's saying... Don't trust anyone but yourself. Don't take God at his word. Rather, look for yourself for other meanings. Create your own meaning in this life apart from God. According to this, that is our best way to define sin. Then, as Genesis 3 concludes, it says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed... He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So the way that I see it here, not just me, a lot of smarter people than me, there's at least three things that sin has caused. One is separation from God. The gates are closed. Access to the garden is shut. Their life in the presence of God, walking in the cool of the day, is over. Human beings can no longer be in that direct presence with God. Sin has established a vast, distance, a vast distance between us and the creator of the universe. The relationship is broken. Human beings who wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil, succeeded only in alienating themselves from God and from each other. Two, sin has caused corruption within creation. Athanasius an ancient church father said it this way human beings east of Eden corrupt everything they would touch competing with each other in lawlessness and devastating all manner of new evils this good and fruitful earth becomes cursed the land itself becomes at odds with human beings down to even the molecular level sin has corrupted creation and we see its effects in every illness, every birth defect, every pandemic, every natural disaster, and the introduction of death itself. While Adam and Eve go on to live strangely long lives, uh, it's like 900 years or something. I don't. If one of you can figure that out, let me know. But they went on to live very strangely long lives, but they do eventually die. Physical and spiritual death have entered the world. The association of sin with physical and spiritual death runs like a spine through scripture and Christian tradition. Athanasius claims that we human beings who were created out of nothing corrupt ourselves back into nothing by our rebellion and defection. Three, sin has caused leverage for Satan. The serpent knew what he was doing, Satan now has what the Bible calls a foothold. I'm sure you're all familiar with plenty of New Testament passages that talk about resisting Satan. Don't give him a foothold. Don't give him any opportunity. Satan and the evil beings of the spiritual realm exploit the human condition and take advantage of our weaknesses for their own gain. So from this story, we see his primary primary strategy is lies. Satan's main tactic is deception. Resisting Satan is first and foremost about the war of believing truth over lies. We now suffer at the hand of evil as a result of this. So this post-Eden world is is kind of a bummer. Uh, But what happens next? Uh, Well, one of Adam and Eve's kids kill the other kid, uh, and then there's a curse, and it gets real real bad, and everything goes um, pretty disastrously pretty quickly, in this life east of Eden. So we're going to be moving ahead now. We're, we've powered through Genesis, uh, the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Switch over to Genesis 6, if you want to follow along in your Bible, uh, where we find that humans are increasing in number and the world is getting worse. We've got Nephilim in the bloodline now, which, long story short, is Satan in the spiritual realm uh, corrupting the bloodline of humanity. Um, and and continuing this corruption of creation. In Genesis 6, 5 through 8, we, we are introduced to Noah. And it reads, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, this is verse 5, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe away... So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that moved along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is a significant line. God sees Noah, and instead of destroying the world, decides to try this whole human experiment again. Noah is given the chance to become the new Adam. God floods the earth, removing the separation of the dry land from the seas. This is an uncreation. What we saw in Genesis 1 is being undone. Then back out from the watery void, life is established. Living creatures are brought on a dry land. Humankind starts again. They're called to be fruitful and multiply. All of this very familiar. This is a second chance to reestablish Shalom. As bad as it got, as corrupt as it all became, God still wanted a chance for human beings to experience shalom. But, as you know, the story did not end well. Just as with Adam and Eve, sin enters this, what you would call, new garden. Noah is found drunk, naked, and ashamed, which, again, very familiar. He is dishonored. His kid is subject to corruption, and there is another family curse, but maybe things aren't as bad after this. Maybe because they were able to wipe the slate clean, things don't get as bad. So let's skip ahead to Genesis 11, where, oh, right, it's the Tower of Babel. <laughs> so in 11, verse 4, we read that humanity has created a civilization for itself, and they are looking to make a name for themselves and make themselves just like God. Very similar to Adam and Eve. In verse 4 of chapter 11, they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. The Tower of Babel was an icon of human supremacy and rebellion against God. They only dug their heels deeper into this corruption and rebellion. And just as in the garden, they are rejecting the goodness and authority of God to define for themselves what is good, right, and true. The sin pattern is being repeated. See, take. Define for yourself. Take it for yourself. The flood did not rid humanity of sin, but rather exposed how deep it inhabits the hearts of humankind. God really tried to restore humanity, but again, it didn't work. The separation from God, the corruption within creation, and the leverage of Satan still stands firm. So, if you're in chapter 11... At the bottom of the chapter, we're introduced to Abram. The Tower of Babel does not go well, but here we are meeting another character in this long line of of God's attempt to restore humanity. So here we meet Abram or Abraham. Just like Noah, God is calling out one person among the rest to be an archetype for humanity and a conduit for God's blessing. It's essentially another new Adam in Genesis 12 1 through3 in the next chapter the Lord has said to Abram go from your country your people and your father's household to the land I will show you I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you I will make your name great and I will be a and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all people on earth will be blessed through you this is a pretty great deal for Abraham. Up until this point, he's done nothing to deserve it. In fact, he's implicated in being an idolater, and yet God still chooses him out from the crowd to bless him unconditionally for some reason. This seems to be an implication that God is not done yet. He still wants to see shalom established on earth. Abraham as new and as new Adam. The unique thing here is that Abraham does respond with obedience. In his book, Covenant and God's Purpose, Covenant and God's Purpose for the World, author Thomas R. Schreiner says, Abraham was a kind of new Adam, representing a new beginning. Adam introduced curses to the world by virtue of his sin, and we find a roll call of five curses in Genesis up to this point in the story. So after the fall, God curses the ground. God curses childbirth. Uh, who else? There's a, just a curse on his family. There's a curse on Noah's family. The curses that descended upon the world through Adam would be received. Sorry, I skipped ahead. We find a roll call of five curses in Genesis up to this point in the story. But when Abraham comes on the scene, he receives a five-fold blessing. The curses that descended upon the world through Adam would be reversed through Abraham and his family. Abraham obeyed God's call to leave his land and family to receive the blessings God promised. God originally blessed Adam and Eve, but now the promise of blessing will be channeled through Abraham. Which is good news. Uh, The promises or covenants that God had with Adam, Eve, and Noah were conditional on their ability to not sin, but they failed. The promise with Abraham is unconditional, meaning God will eventually bless no matter what it takes. He's committed to a new way. And when I say bless no matter what it takes, bless here is redeem, reconcile, put to rights, reestablish the garden. This means that God is changing his plan. He's committing to a long game, and no matter what it takes, he is going to, to redeem creation Even if he has to do it himself, which, if you know the Bible very well, is a foreshadow to where we'll end today. So, Abraham unconditionally receives this promise, and God is going to do it for him, which is great for us because have you met Abraham's family? They're kind of a mess. There's a ton of drama. It's just generations from Abraham of weirdos and polygamists and liars and cowards who are overcome with jealousy of one another and violence and betrayal toward one another. If, if, if there was any corruption in any bloodlines, it's in Abraham's. This, uh, this, this story of God redeeming creation and using Abraham despite his sin is where we find the, the uh, thread of God's work to redeem creation. But in this story with Abraham, we're going to follow one strange subplot. In Genesis 12, right after the five-fold blessing, Abraham goes to Egypt with his wife because there is a famine. And in verse 11, it says, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let me then they then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Abraham lies about his relationship with his wife, puts her at risk to save his own, and he's even about to make some money out of it. In verse 17, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. It's a great thing that the promise to Abraham is unconditional. But listen, you think he might have learned his lesson. He doesn't. He does the same thing again. Verse 20, one through three. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said to his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. How does he do this twice? Twice. Twice he puts his wife at risk. Twice he lies. Twice he lies. Twice he commits this same sin. And you think, they've got to be figuring this out soon. They don't. We're going to flash forward to Abraham's son, Isaac, who is traveling because of a famine in Gerar with Abimelech. And you guessed it. When the men of that place, in Genesis 26, when the men of that place asked Isaac about his wife, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is, really, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac committed the same sin as his father in the same town with the same king. <laughs> so this has clearly become a generational pattern of sin. Abraham lies and puts his wife at risk twice. Abraham's son Isaac does the exact same thing. Isaac's son Jacob lies and deceives him about his birthright. Jacob's sons sell their brothers into slavery, sell their brother in slavery and lie about it. Over four generations, we see clear patterns of sin. Lying, misogyny, selfishness, favoritism, rivalry. It is easy to read this, And judge them for repeating the same mistakes over and over. But the corruption in their bloodline, that fall from grace that we saw in the garden, is also in ours. We all repeat the same mistakes. Now, to not be too harsh on Abraham and his family, I thought I might confess a couple of my own mistakes that I've repeated in the past. Uh, After I lived in Southern California for a little while, I moved to Northern Arizona. If you don't know Northern Arizona, it's not cactuses like Phoenix. It's more high desert pine trees. I think Grand Canyon, snow in the winter. A lot of weird desert creatures. Uh, It's very much like Central Oregon. Anyway, in high school, we would go swimming at these these water holes. My wife went to one with me once, and she hated it. It was 100 degrees and a three-mile hike. She said the swim was not worth it. But my friends and I, we would go out into the, into these, the desert to go swim, and we would camp overnight. But I always like traveling light, so I would only just bring a sleeping bag and some food, and we'd throw out a tarp, and we'd sleep under the night sky, which sounds great until you wake up in the middle of the night with a tarantula on you. I, I don't fully remember. It could have been a snake. I just remember brushing something off of me and waking up with fang marks on my side that were swollen and thinking, this isn't good. But I'm not going to tell anybody because that would be embarrassing. (laughs) Thankfully, I didn't die, which is great. However, I did not learn my lesson. The next year, we're out in the same place, camping in the same place. I brought a sleeping bag with no tent. I thought, ah, can't possibly happen again. But that time, I woke up in the middle of the night to the tiny little paws climbing around on me. And I opened my eyes really slowly, and there was a skunk standing on me. And all I could do was lay there, motionless, while this skunk climbed over my body and around my legs for a good 10 minutes, till it eventually wallowed away into the dark. And since then, I always bring a tent. My point is that this story of sin and the bloodline is our story. We're all destined to sin. We're all destined to make mistakes. We're all destined to repeat those mistakes. The corruption in creation affects us, and it did not end with Abraham. We get into Exodus. We are introduced to a new character by the name of Moses. Moses was a type of new Adam. God is still trying to reconcile his people back to him. Moses leads the descendants of Abraham out of Egypt with the promise of establishing them as a nation. The law and commandments uh, were given to them to, create, to recreate that order, of sinlessness in the garden and so that God could dwell among his people. As you know, it had its problems. Disobedience to the law perpetuated. Israel does not have a great record of remaining obedient to God. David was a type of new Adam. He leads the people of Israel into Jerusalem, the promised land that they've been waiting for for so long. The Jerusalem is a type of new Eden. He is, and he, David, as king, is the foreshadow of a coming king that will fully establish the kingdom of God on earth. But again, as you know, everything goes terribly wrong. The pattern of rebellion and sin is all too familiar in the history of Israel. This pattern repeats itself all the way down through the generations until finally Jesus intervenes. When God made that covenant with Abraham. He knew he would have to take matters into his own hands. Enter Jesus on the scene. With that, we're going to take a quick look at what generational sin, this pattern of sin that we see through the Old Testament, through the nations of Israel, through the people of God. We're going to take a quick look at what generational sin means to us today and get back to... Felt-bored Jesus versus big, angry, puppet, serpent, uh, as we end. So the generational sin of Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, is still perpetuating itself. We have received from them, from that original sin, through the generations, to our grandparents, to us, we have received an inheritance of death. We also receive an inheritance of sins, acute specific sins, from our families today. Our present is shaped by our past. The generational sins of our great-grandfathers, grandmothers, fathers and mothers, have formed us today. Who you are is shaped by where you come from. We are all being formed by something, for the better or for the worse. It's usually the culture that you were born into key events in your childhood or adolescence, relationships with peers and friends, trauma or abuse events in your past. But without a doubt, the single greatest influence on who you are today is your family of origin. These things carry enormous blessing, but they also carry profound curse. Just look at the line of Abraham. Now, even in our individualistic society... We acknowledge this concept of generational impact as as real. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, like mother, like daughter, like father, like son. Or, in the words of the little known American songwriter John Mayer, he writes How much of my mother has my mother left in me? How much of my love will be insane to some degree? How much of my father am I destined to become? Will I dim the lights inside me just to satisfy someone? How much like my brothers do my brothers want to be? Does a broken home become another broken family? Or will we be there for each other like nobody ever could? Will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood? Our family of origin is the most typical setting for generational blessing and generational sin. Alcoholics often bring up Alcoholic children who, who marry alcoholic spouses and produce more alcoholic children. Sexist families tend to produce sexism spread through the family tree to control and patronize women. Racist families raise racist children who, dis, who disseminate hate on playgrounds and in classrooms and in workplaces. But those are some clearly of the worst case scenarios. Inhospitable parents will raise children who don't know how to welcome and care for strangers greed anger impatience selfishness selfishness unhealthy relationships with food uh, emotional neglect perfectionism criticism anxiety poverty mental illness are all passed down in the family a parent's sin has consequences for their children and their grandchildren and great grandchildren sin is both fatal and fertile It kills and it reproduces. You may be thinking that it is bad to revisit the past. If it is behind us, just let it go. But the past is much more relevant to your present than you may realize. Not until you break free of these generational patterns are they truly in the past and your present fully belongs to you. Pete Cazero, author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says this, our past affects our present ability to love Christ and others. We have realized from scripture and life that an intricate, complex relationship exists between the kinds of persons we are today and our past. Numerous external forces may shape us, but the family we have grown up in is the primary and, except in rare instances, the most powerful system that will shape and influence who we are. I... Uh, I have an unusual family of origin. My parents are divorced. They separated when I was very young. I don't really have much memory of them together. So I don't really know what it's like to live in a complete home. My mother never attended church. My father would take me on his weekends every other weekend when I stayed at his house. So I grew up in the church, but not in a Christian home which is a weird tension to exist in that I had to reconcile with over time. I have a half-brother whom I have never really lived with. I only ever spent time with him on our dad's weekend. Uh, But my parents loved me as best as they knew how. And I I felt it. Both of my parents each fought their own demons, in a way. Uh, They fought their own demons that they had inherited from their parents. So I... I grew up outside of the home, really. I was raised, as you would say, by friends, teachers, coaches, youth pastors. Um, now that I'm a husband and father, I had three of them that were causing trouble up here earlier. Um, I am learning what it means to grow up in a, in a complete home, in an intact home. I, I, I don't have that experience as a kid. I was an only child with a single mom for the most of my life. So, I don't know what it's like having a busy, full house, let alone how to lead one with my wife. So, I don't have a personal precedent for a present father. And if I want to break that pattern, I have to figure it out on my own. Otherwise, I'm going to perpetuate that to my kids as well. But my parents came from somewhere too with their own families of origin. Now, be prepared, there's some real weirdos in my my past. My paternal grandfather was named Waldo. It's a great name. Um, Apparently, my great grandfather, so my dad's dad's dad, was a French immigrant who settled in Gallup, New Mexico, uh, and started a newspaper. He went on to publish plenty of articles about his son, Waldo. A quick Google search will produce some real obscure ones. Here is an article from the Gallup Independent of June 10th, 1930. And it says, there it is. It says, little Waldo Hands, nine-year-old son of Mr. and Mrs. W.H. Hands, thanks his lucky stars, no one writes like that anymore, that he is alive. But at the same time mourns the loss of his companion, mate, and chum, Lady, a Shetland pony who was killed Saturday. <laughs> it's not funny. His pony was killed. My grandfather's pony was killed. It's not funny. <laughs> While driving up on Terrence Avenue Saturday evening in the front of their home, with Waldo astride, they were struck by an auto driven by Harry Miller, barber, who was hurrying home to supper. Lady has been Waldo's constant companion for the past two years and was instantly killed by the crash, her head having been crushed. Are you still laughing? <laughs> Waldo was miraculously thrown clear of the accident and escaped with, with about few bruises. Well, thank God for that. That could have gone much worse for me. So Waldo would grow up, to become a doctor, a father of five. He worked as a Catholic medical missionary, as an orthopedic surgeon. He worked in an African leper colony in the 1960s, where he raised his kids and he he restored the movements of of joints in the hands of people suffering from leprosy. There's another article about him, this time from the New York Times. Have you heard of that? Dr. Waldo Hans of Albuquerque, New Mexico, his wife and five children returned to this country last week and showed color slides of their two years in an African leprosarium. Dr. Hans, a 42-year-old orthopedic surgeon with stubby fingers and unruly hair, I don't know why they had to... <laughs> he performed 325 major operations during his volunteer, unpaid stints with the, without the help of an x-ray or electricity. It goes on to say, the family lived in a hospital in Agoja, Nigeria, run by a community of Irish nuns. 3,000 lepers are on its rolls. For them, Dr. Hans performed operations to restore the use of hands and feet crippled by the disease. (laughs) Why did we go, Waldo said. Well, we didn't have any visions or anything like that. It's just that my wife kept encouraging me. Some people would call it nagging my uh, my grandma his wife is one of the best people i've ever met uh, she is a world explorer she was one of the closer people to me in my childhood she i'm not kidding had a face tattoo that she got in papua new guinea so i don't i don't know how what, what she's quite a woman On their way home from Africa, the Hans family stopped in Rome where the head of the house received the Pro Ecclesia et Pontifice Medal, whatever that is, at the Vatican. The family had an audience with the Pope, too, and their youngest child, Daniel, one and a half, who was born in Nigeria, slept through it. The eldest blonde, my Aunt Sid, was unimpressed. The Pope, she said, matter of factly, he was okay. (laughs) So my family on my father's side is very unique, very impressive, very accomplished. These people have seen the world, done amazing things, and taken their kids with them. But, but my, my grandfather was a flawed human being. By any external measure of the man, he was a saint. But he died a couple, de- couple decades later of lung cancer from an addiction to cigarettes. His kids tell stories of him being kind of distant and somewhat harsh. None of them remained committed to the church after they moved out of the home and they all kind of grew distant as a family. I never met him so I don't really know. He died before I was born. What I do know of him is the legacy he left in my father. My mother's grandpa, my mother's my grandpa my mother's dad. The other side of the family was also an impressive accomplished man. He was a landscape oil painter, he was a pilot, He had a degree from the Art Institute of Chicago, which is pretty impressive. He had small homes in Florida, Arizona, and Mexico. He very much embodied that beatnik lifestyle of the late 1950s and early 60s. But he was also an absent father. As accomplished as his life was, he wasn't there in my mom's life when she was a kid. He was indifferent to the people who needed him. He was a womanizer, a flanderer. He had a lot of kids with no commitments. Although he was an accomplished human being, worthy of being impressed by. Now I have one more news article. This one from Tampa Bay Times. That says, a landscape artist from Florida and a companion were found shot to death in a mobile home along with a dog and investigators say they have few leads. The bodies of Russell and a woman detectives have yet to identify were found Saturday at his trailer in a rural part of Williamson Valley. The killing was reported by a friend of Morton's who said he went to the trailer and saw the bodies through a glass door after the artist failed to show up at his favorite coffee shop. What happened was an ex-girlfriend was jealous of him and his current girlfriend, followed him to Arizona, and killed them both. And I was eight years old, nine, so talk about... My seemingly past dramatically affecting my present and my future. It was into this house in Arizona that I moved from California. And this was a part of my childhood, knowing what happened to my grandfather. It's a horrific tragedy they did not deserve. And I only really remember meeting him once before that. But what I know most about him is the legacy he left on my mother. So in my family of origin, there are a number of heartaches and tragedies, cancer, divorce, murder, addiction, mental illness, emotional distress, abandonment, misogyny, poverty, and the death of at least one pony. Is this still so funny? <laughs> there is a long list of generational blessings in my family that bring a great deal of meaning to my life. I, only once I started tracing this family tree in recent years, realize that in my line of work, I have this unique um, combination of vocational ministry and creative expression, which, looking at my family line, is a weird blend of my very devout Catholic family and my very artistic, free-spirited side of the family. Somehow, I inherited both of those traits and I combined them into one. So there's a lot of things to to be grateful for from these generational blessings. But there is a long list of sins that I need to overcome. That list of sins, that, so they don't get passed on to my kids. Cornelius Plantanga, from the book that, that uh, this series is based on, we, he writes, We know that when we sin, we pervert, adulterate, and destroy good things. We create matrices and atmospheres of moral evil and bequeath them to our descendants. By habitual practice, we let loose a great rolling momentum of moral and spiritual evil across generations. But it does not have to be this way. Your past has shaped your present, but it does not need to determine your future. You can break free from sin, you can change these generational patterns. We don't have to pass them on to our children. So the question is how do we break the cycle of sin? Well, first, according to Jesus, we need to recognize that we, are, we were created in a war zone. There is an invisible battle going on all around us in the spiritual realm seeking to destroy us. In John, Jesus says, speaking to a group of the Jewish community there, He says, he was a murderer from the beginning, meaning Satan, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That means from Jesus, from the beginning of creation, Satan has been at odds with the kingdom of God. He's been at odds with us. He is a member of the spiritual realm who has rebelled against God and is looking to bring chaos and suffering. Paul, in Ephesians, says something similar. He says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So somehow we need to resist. Somehow we need to fight back. This is where enter Jesus. So if, you're, if you want, flip over to Matthew 4. We'll, we'll read about Jesus, who's fully human, Versus Satan, the felt board Jesus taking on the giant puppet snake. This account of Jesus going into the wilderness, which I imagine you're all familiar with, is a breaking point in the perpetuation of sin through humankind. In verse, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Sure, that makes sense. But this encounter with Satan is part of the meta-narrative, the biblical theology, the on, ongoing unfolding story of God's plan to reconcile creation back to back to Himself. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the place of temptation, and this is a callback to Genesis 3 that we read. This is this is just as Satan attacks, attacked Eve and Adam. Satan is attacking Jesus. This is also a callback to Israel in the desert with Moses, when Israel spent 40, day, 40 years in the desert. But in the ways that Israel failed to keep the law, Jesus has succeeded in this encounter with Satan. After three temptations, each attempt to elicit sin from Jesus, Satan has failed. Satan won in the garden. Satan won in the wilderness with Israel. But he lost in the wilderness with Jesus. Jesus accomplished what Adam and Eve couldn't, what Noah couldn't, what Abraham couldn't. That means Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the the coming king foreshadowed by David. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. When God said, I will bless, no matter what it takes, this is what he meant. He's here to do it himself. So Jesus has broken the patterns of sin, Satan tried to corrupt bloodlines, to corrupt Jesus, but he failed. So, this is where it leaves us with generational patterns as we get close to the end here. What do we do? What do we do with these generational patterns? We are on this side of the cross, so we have Jesus, who has broken the chains and defeated the enemy, But there's still some work to be done, at least on our part, if we want to continue to break these generational patterns in our lives. So, one, returning back to what sin accomplished in the garden and still has an effect on us today, is the separation from God. Sin separates us from God. But the work of Jesus and his death is the atonement of sin. The veil in the temple has been, has been torn, meaning we now have access through Jesus. We now have access. By his blood, we have been brought near. We have access, again, restored access to God. We can now approach the throne of grace with confidence. So the question for you is, what areas in your life are you far from God? What areas in your life is there still separation from God, hindering you from boldly going to him and being in his presence Where in our lives do we have this see and take mentality? Where are we defining good, right, and true in our own lives as opposed to his? We also need to not just confront the separation, our separation from God. We need to confront the corruption in ourselves and within creation. Both being on this side of the cross, we have forgiveness of sin but you can't change what you don't see. There, There is corruption in all of us. There are hidden blind spots of sin in all of us. So how do we unearth them? How do we pull them out by the root? Where is there corruption in our lives? Well, that's... There's no, one, there's no one answer to, to identifying the corruption in our lives, to identifying the generational patterns in our lives. One way to do it is to sit down with someone you know and trust. Ask those closest to you to help you create a path of formation toward Christ and away from the flesh. Do an inventory of your life. Uh, do a family tree. They call them family genograms. Where you can trace these generational patterns of poverty, of abuse, of trauma. Of, of, of so many things that affect us today, you can trace back into your family, identify them, and then start to remove them from your own lives. So you need to ask yourself, what do you need to stop doing now? What, what, what generational pattern do you need to end? And then even ask, ask the question, what pattern should you start? What ways can you break the curse and begin new blessings for yourself and your family? But ultimately, we don't want to spend our lives managing sin. We don't want to spend our lives managing the symptoms of sin. We want to pull them out by the root. And this is part of it. Finally, where does Satan have leverage in your life? We all have footholds. We all have weaknesses. And he is looking to exploit them. Jesus disarmed Satan during that time in the wilderness. He broke the pattern and removed the legacy of sins, the, the bigger picture of sins. But as, as Rose spoke about a couple of weeks ago, we exist in what is called the now and not yet, meaning Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God. He, he, he brought it into a beginning, but it's still not fully here. So we're kind of caught in this weird tension where sin is defeated, but we're still very much vulnerable. The war has essentially been won, but we're still fighting battles and we're still vulnerable. So we need to find those strongholds that Satan has and you need to ask yourself, what are they? What footholds, what strongholds can be overcome? What generational patterns are being used against you? What weaknesses and vulnerabilities does Satan see that you don't see that he is going to exploit? So this is it to end. Marshall, you can come up. I'm just going to read uh, from Hebrews chapter 4. so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Amen.